to Sin Escapism, the podcast by two friends who love to talk about the movies. I'm Kendra Bean. And I'm Anthony Ujarovsky. Yay, second time's a charm. Uh, yes, hi Kendra. <laughs> hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm good, I've just been watching the football. Oh yeah, same. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the World Cup is like the only sporting event that I care about, and so I'm really excited about it. I know you are. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah. It's funny because I was talking to... Um, well, I posted about it on Facebook. I was like, oh, the World Cup's starting. It's my favorite thing. The only sporting event I care about. And then a couple of Robbie's friends were like, if I had to pick five people, like the top five people who I thought would never love football, you would be in the top. And I was like, I guess you don't know my life because I used to play soccer, as we call it in America, for like 13 years competitive. And they were like fuck off i need to go sit and have a cup of tea and digest it and i was like oh my gosh (laughs) well i guess you don't really like have a footballer's physique maybe so and that's a compliment by the way are you saying that i'm fat (laughs) not at all no (laughs) so anyway kendra came down to london last week was it I last did. week? Yeah, it was so exciting. Yeah, yeah, on Friday. And we watched it. Was the first game one of the first games in the pub together? So it was fun. It was Spain and Portugal. It was a really good game. It was, yeah. Unlike this one, we just finished watching, which was England versus Tunisia. Thank you. Yeah, it was so boring. I did, I don't even remember who played anymore. Oh dear. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it was. Uh, though I was, I was watching it, and the BBC commentator guy was like, "It's as if England is playing with the handbrake on." <laughs> I wish. You, in in 1994, they beat so and so team four one, and I wish they would just sprinkle a bit of magic on this game as well. Like it started off really exciting, and then they just became all reserved and like, hmm, cautious optimism. And then like it was kind of like cynical about it, and I thought it was kind of funny. Maybe it's the Russian diet, you know. I was like, oh, maybe they poison the water. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, so we went went down to London and we hung out in Crouch End, um, where I used to live and where you live now. And we went to the King's Head pub and it was like a nostalgia kind of thing. And it was just really nice. Nostalgia. Yes. And we went to Dunn's Bakery and got cupcakes. Yeah, we did. No, it was really lovely. Yeah, it was great to have you here. It was good. And then we watched Drag Race, my favorite show. Oh, yes, we did. Which yeah, I still... we did. Was... I was actually watching that while watching the football you, as well. You're so. catching up on it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're catching up, so... I am, yeah. Slowly, but surely. Yeah. Slow. Well, you need to finish it by next Friday, because that's when they're crowning the new queen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everyone watch Drag Race. It's on VH1 and or Netflix, so... You will not regret it, trust me. <laughs> oh, you will. I it's don't know. It's too good. <laughs> <laughs> no, you won't. It's too good. It's like enriched my life. I love it. No, so funny. So many gifts. So many quotes. Speaking of drag queens, <laughs> though. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. Speaking of queens, we have a very special guest this week. It's our first time to have a guest on Sinescapism. Yay! We're very, very excited. She is a wonderful entertainment and film writer and also a great friend of mine, Miss Steph Brandhuber. Hi, Hi guys. Hi, Steph. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. So exciting. I've been looking forward to this. Also, I do apologize. I I didn't mean to suggest that you are a drag queen, Steph. I don't That's know if, all right. I don't think I don't know. It's it, a compliment. It didn't come out right, but yes, yeah, Steph is not a drag queen. No, but a queen in other senses, which Absolutely. I am. I appreciate yes. greatly. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, Ste- Steph, you are a, a very, very exciting young writer. Oh, stop it! Yeah, you are. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about your work and what you do? Sure. Uh, As you said, I'm a film and entertainment writer. Um, So I do that on a freelance basis. Uh, So I do a lot of film reviews and um, a lot of feature pieces. And I also do a sprinkling of travel writing on the side um, and some lifestyle writing too. Um, But film is sort of my main uh, area of expertise. 
Um, I did my, uh, well, I have a master's degree in film studies from King's College London, and I did, <laughs> I know, King's represent. <laughs> Woo! Uh, and I also did uh, French with film studies uh, for my undergrad degree at King's College London as well. Uh, and so, yeah, I've been working mainly in sort of film, graduating, I've sort of re- film research work for the BBC. Um, I worked in film archive, uh, but all through those jobs I was doing writing uh, about film. And so I finally took the plunge about six months ago and decided to give it the sort of full-time go and make that my my job and super happy doing it. And you're very good at it. So keep up the good oh, well, work. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> So Steph and I actually met at the British Library. We're both working and we found each other in the sort of depths of the archives in the basements. And We know, did. <laughs> was... We were just like wandering around in the basement and ran into each other like, oh, another friend. Hooray. <laughs> I was no. like, oh, a kindred spirit. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, I was already working there. And then one day, you know, they brought this fresh young thing, you know. <laughs> and I was like, hey. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> no, it was great because we like discovered we had so much in common. We both studied languages and film and we love writing about film and talking about film. So it was kind of one of those great moments when you meet someone who like is meant to be your friend. So yeah, it was Definitely. great. Definitely. Beautiful. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> I'm getting all sentimental. Oh, lovely. Nostalgia. <laughs> Nostalgia. <laughs> Indeed. Speaking of nostalgia. Yes. uh, Should we talk about what we're doing on the show today? Oh, yeah, sure. Why not? Sure, why not? (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to be talking about Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, and the FX series Feud that Ryan Murphy did. Was it like last year or a couple of years ago that it came out? It was last year, yes. It was 2017. Last year. And basically, Feud saved 2017 from being a total nightmare, which it was anyway, but it kind of helped me through. So thanks, Feud. (laughs) Thanks, Feud. (laughs) Right, so if you guys haven't seen it, uh, it's a mini-series that aired on FX, and it's about this legendary sort of rivalry between Hollywood legends Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. So what Anthony and I are going to do is we're each going to talk a little bit about each of the actresses and then we'll all talk a bit about the series and what we thought of it and kind of compare it to real life and then talk a little bit about a certain court case that's happening right now as well and we have many opinions so it'll be fun (laughs) we do yes (laughs) right so so Kendra do you want to do you want to say a few things about the great Bessie Davis first yeah, so Betty Davis is someone that I mean, when I first got into classic films, I was like, which, you know, really famous movie should I watch? And one of them was, of course, All About Eve starring Betty, um, for mm. which she didn't win an Oscar, but probably should have. Uh, it's a complete classic. Um, so Betty Davis was born Ruth Elizabeth Davis in Lowell, Massachusetts in 1908. Uh, Her mom was a professional photographer named Ruth Augusta Davis, Um, and in an interview in later life, Betty said that her impetus for wanting to be an actor, or at least wanting to be really successful in her life, was because her mom was suffering from like a chemical poisoning um, when people used to develop photographs, um, like a whole chemical process is used for that, and she was, you know, quite gaunt and had... I think something happened to her face. That's what I kind of got from this interview. But Betty said, you know, seeing her mom uh, not making very much money and and quite poorly that she really wanted to make it so that her mom never had to work again. So she was inspired to become an actress when she watched uh, an actress called Peg Entwistle on stage. And Peg Entwistle is really known for being a quite sad person, I mean, she committed suicide by jumping off the Hollywood sign in LA. Um, and that's really how we know her today, if we know her at all. Um, 
but Betty really liked Peg as an actress. And so in 1929, she auditioned for George Cukor's acting company in Rochester, New York, um, and was given a small role in one of the plays that they did. And then in 1930, she came to Hollywood with her mom and her dog. And she said again later that when she arrived, she was surprised that there was no studio car there to meet her and her mom. So usually uh, when a studio would invite an actress out to do a test, um, you know, they would have a representative there to meet that person. Um, but no one was there for Betty. But actually, it turns out they were, but they just didn't see anyone who they thought looked like an actress. And oh, so, ouch. yeah, burn. <laughs> but I mean, I think that kind of plays into the whole fact that Betty was never really known for being a great beauty, unlike people who we've spoken about on this show before. So, like Ava Gardner, right. Hedy Lamar. Um, or Vivian Lee, uh, she was known more for her characterizations and for being a consummate actress. And there was like a really big kind of difference of opinion between a film star and an actress. But of course, Betty was both. So um, she spent a year working at Universal Pictures. Um, and then her first year that she was there, which was 1930, wasn't very happy for her. She did a lot of films, but very small parts, and she wasn't particularly successful. So after a year, she decided she was probably going to move back to New York. But then she got a phone call from a British actress called British actor, not actress, called George Arliss. Um, and he offered her the lead role in a film called The Man Who Played God. Uh, and that was for Warner Brothers. So after that film, she signed with them and was with Warner Brothers for about 20 years and became like their top female star. Mm. So she was really, I mean, she was big time. She won two Academy Awards, one for Dangerous in 1935 and then for Jezebel in 1938. And some notable films aside from All About Eve would be Of Human Bondage, The Letter, Dark Victory, etc. So she was all over the map at that studio. She did a lot of great things and she's a complete legend. She totally is. And that's is. Betty in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. She was larger than life, as she herself said. So. <laughs> yeah, she definitely was. I mean, I know you, Steph, you have a, a very particular sort of affinity for Betty. I do love Betty. Um, Betty Davis, uh, she's just... Oh, I get emotional almost whenever I speak about <laughs> Betty Davis. She's just so fab. I think one of the reasons why I love her so much is just because she's so fierce in all senses of the word. And she just, you know, if, when watching her on film or when watching her in interviews and off-screen appearances she just exudes such an intense power and it, it's just amazing to watch her and she always i think the other reason why i love her so much is because she was always unashamedly herself and yes. it didn't matter what producers directors sort of tried to get her to be or to do she was always true to herself which i think especially for an actress at that time was really um remarkable um, because she just refused to conform to other people's ideals of how she should be. Um, and it really is a testament to to herself um, as a woman, you know, let alone just, you know, as an actress. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, but Betty never played it safe, which I think is, is also very cool of her. She refused to conform to the image of being pretty or of just being sort of a gentle, genteel lady. Um, and so she took all sorts of roles that challenged herself and challenge the sort of perception of women. Um, and I think that's really remarkable. Yeah, she said in a later interview that, you know, a lot of the stage people, people who came from the theater in New York and went out to Hollywood, um, they weren't really known for their looks. And again, that's sort of one of those discrepancies between being a film star and being an actress. And Betty uh, really, she had this steely determination and a really sort of tough confidence that she just exuded like, I'm this fierce bitch and don't come for me kind of attitude. So it was, yeah. it's quite amazing. And she's like that in all of her films. She's just like, won't be cowed in her films. Um, and she, she's just, she's like a tough broad. Yeah. And that's what I love about her as well. Yeah. I mean, she, but what about Joan? Well, Joan. Or Betty. You can keep talking <laughs> about Betty. <laughs> well, I love Betty as well. I've always, I always have. And I think, you know, she, she is just so strong and so independent. And I think that's what I admired about her as a child. I, was, I would watch her on the screen and think, you know, she's so tiny because she was a really petite sort of lady. And yet she had this enormous amount of strength and sort of 
energy and her voice i mean that voice alone is incredible and her eyes i mean we can't talk about betty davis without talking about betty davis eyes which you know she mm-hmm. could really sort of um communicate so much with just a single look which sounds like a cliche but in her case it actually was true so i mean as far as screen acting goes i think you can't really do much better than than she did and every single performance she delivered from those early films to till the very end she just owned every single scene that she was in so I think and that's not an overstatement she really did you can't sort of overshadow Betty Davis so I think she kind of like bulldozed her way through cinema history totally yeah so but Joan Crawford she was sort of I don't know it's often said that they were very different but at the same time quite alike as well it's interesting this this dichotomy that you know they were both stars at the at the same time they shared a lot of the same men <laughs> both on screen and off <laughs> but joan was really the whereas betty was the consummate actress joan was the quintessential movie star she was mm-hmm. the epitome of glamour and sort of the movie star beauty and the kind of glamour that betty probably detested but i think probably deep inside also admired because she you know, couldn't really project what Joan did, as th- in the same way that Joan couldn't do what Betty did. So I think that they were both um, in awe of the other one, but also a bit jealous, probably, which probably where the feud comes in. But um, just to say a few things about Joan, she was born in um, Texas and in San Antonio, and no one really knows exactly what year she was born. People say 1904, 1906, so there are different accounts as to when, when she would... It, it, when she was actually born um we'll have to do a project so you're gonna have to go on ancestry.com and find out for sure well the thing is you can't because (laughs) apparently there were no birth certificates in texas until 1910 so there is no official what (laughs) yeah so there's no official like birth certificate for joan so that's why you know she said i think 1906 and but people say no i don't think so anyway Her childhood was very, very sad and lonely, and there was a lot of abuse. So her father left her mother before Joan was born, and so she grew up without a father. And her mother married again this man called Henry Casson, who um, apparently abused Joan sexually when she was a child. Um, Ugh. And her mother was also very abusive, and she favored... Joan's brother who was older and who was sort of this golden boy and she always you know he could do no wrong and everything was always Joan's fault so she was she became this almost like a Cinderella character during her childhood and her only escape was sort of seeing the movies and dancing she loved dancing it is actually dancing that got her into the movies in the first place so she became a chorus girl and she got discovered while she was dancing in this shabby nightclub in um, Kansas City and then she moved to Detroit and then New York. And finally, when she was in New York, she got discovered by MGM and moved to Hollywood. But when she got to Hollywood, again, it wasn't an easy way to start. And she had to really fight her way to becoming a star. Um, she quickly realized that the studio wasn't going to put her up there. She had to do it herself. So she entered all sorts of dancing contests and um, she really sort of forced people to notice her. So. <laughs> Um, and her, yeah, she put in the work, she, for sure. She really did. And, you know, she was like this is a full package. She could dance, she could act, she was stunning to look at. So finally they did notice her. Um, but she was never the queen of MGM because obviously they had Garbo, they had Norma Shearer, who was married to the boss, as Joan used to say. So she really, mm-hmm. she really, and in the same way that Betty had to fight at Warner's, Joan had to fight at MGM, and it wasn't an easy 20 years, but she was a huge star throughout the 30s. Um, but I think what's really important about Joan is that she was sort of the queen of reinvention before, well, long before Madonna or Cher came on the scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she was able to really, you know, have a few different careers in one lifetime. She had the sort of 1920s jazz baby flapper, then she was the sort of the shop girl, um, rags to riches, 1930s stories. And then just when everyone thought she was through, she came back in a big way at Warner's, which actually enraged Betty, obviously, because Betty was still at Warner Brothers when they signed Joan um, in the mid forties. And she won the Oscar for Mildred Pierce, which Betty had rejected before so she wasn't very happy (laughs) (laughs) 
and throughout the 50s though she was approaching 50s you know by the time herself but she was still this you know glamorous movie star and her films were actually quite successful which was very unusual at the time for a leading lady in her 50s to still have hit films so i think by the time they did whatever happened to baby jane in 1962 you know they were both just you know they had those amazing careers behind them but you know everyone thought okay this is it you can't possibly go any further because you are simply too old so no one believed that whatever mm-hmm. happened to baby jane would be a success and it was so yeah <laughs> Um, you mentioned that when she left MGM for Warner Brothers, why did she leave MGM? Because her films were losing money and she was named box office poison along with Catherine Hepburn and Greta Garbo. And it was sort of by mutual consent that her and Louis B. Mayer, you know, he said to her, I don't really have any projects suitable for you. And she said, OK. Mm-hmm. And she left. And she was, you know, they were both really bitter when Betty left Warner's. She said, you know, they didn't give me anything. They didn't give me a watch. They didn't say goodbye and say, you know. And it was the same with Joan. After 20 years of being a major star, she left MGM and, you know, with nothing. So... I mean, I feel like that was a totally typical thing to happen because, like, when Clark Gable left MGM at the end of the 1950s, the same thing happened. Like, he had been their top male star at the biggest studio in Hollywood for, what, 20 years? And they just said, okay, see ya, you know? And he didn't get any kind of, like, credit. But, of course... It was a very ruthless Time world. has been kind to them. Yeah, it was a complete... I, I don't think I would do well in that industry. I think I would, like, curl up in a corner and become a husk of my real self. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It just seems, like, really cutthroat and... You had to really yeah. have balls, but... <laughs> but I think that's also an interesting point about how tough the industry was. And I think... When you look at people like Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, they earned themselves a reputation for being these difficult women. Um, But part of that was because they were fighting, you know, tooth and nail to try to be noticed and to try to get work. And, you know, and not just work, but quality work. Exactly. Exactly. To get quality work and, you know, acting gigs that they actually wanted and they thought were right for them. So I think that's a really interesting point that, you know, for a lot of people, you would just kind of curl up and want to disappear. But these women fought so hard to yeah. to get where they were and sort of refused to give up, refused to just sort of be, you know, dismissed um, with age and, and, you know, with passing time. So it's a real it's to their credit that they did it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of times when people are labeled as difficult women, or difficult actresses, difficult people to work with. I think you're right, Seth, that it does have a lot to do with them not, you know, bowing down to the directors as like kind of misogynistic, um, patriarchal system. I mean, these people talked back and they fought back and they weren't going to be put in their place because they wanted, you know, they wanted to be great at what they were doing. They wanted to stay on top of the industry that they were in. And I think it took a lot of, yeah, balls to yeah. do that and and I think so if we look back on on you know a lot of these actresses who were labeled difficult and kind of reassess that and and think about the things that they were actually doing behind the scenes as opposed to just like oh well she must have just been a bitch or she was like late all the time or whatever I think we would uncover some you know different stories there that maybe deserve to be told in a different way well I think basically the ones that are not difficult we probably don't talk about anymore because they're forgotten (laughs) the the ones we talk about are the ones that were difficult at the time yeah (laughs) that's very true that's very true and i mean in feud um the whole thing is again about betty and joan making this film called whatever happened to baby jane and then the the few years after that and the whole thing is about them sort of going head to head these two titans of the film industry um you know navigating this Navigating what it means to be, you know, an aging actress in Hollywood and still trying to fight their way to the top and to stay on the top. And it's just a really interesting dynamic that they had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that Feud sort of tackled that and Ryan Murphy, I think, you know, deserves a big credit for tackling that that subject, taking it on because... You know, it's still in Hollywood, I think, even today, and if you guys will agree with me, but 
I think older, especially female actors, are certainly on the fringes, and it's really hard for actresses to get parts, apart from Meryl, who gets parts, but... <laughs> I think, <laughs> Meryl's the only one. Yeah, I think everyone else is sort of... It's really, really hard still to this day, so I think to have a major show like that really is important. I think Feud is definitely added to the sort of presence of older women being showcased in film and TV. Um, but sort of playing devil's advocate here, I think it's I think it's very easy to be like, oh, we don't see older women. Um, they're sort of cast aside. But actually looking mm-hmm. at the Oscar winners for Best Actress in the past few years, this year we saw Frances McDormand win the Oscar. Um, she's amazing. She, I love her. She's fantastic. But obviously she's sort of, well, I wouldn't say that she's an old lady, but, you know, she's uh, <laughs> older than Emma Stone or Brie Larson, who won for the yeah. two previous years. But then if you look before Brie Larson, there's Julianne Moore and Kate Blanchett, who, again, mm-hmm. aren't exactly the youngest. So I feel I, I do agree that older actresses don't get the roles that they should. They don't have as many but i do find that it it is a bit too simple to say that you know they're not anywhere to be seen um but i think definitely feud has helped with showcasing them and obviously you have shows like grace and frankie on netflix yeah and yeah. yay grace and frankie <laughs> and sort of recent films like we have book club that's just come out um which wasn't great but at least well, i wanted to see it <laughs> It's, it's not fantastic, I'll, I'll say that, but uh, but no, I do feel that people are starting to speak out a bit more and sort of reveal the injustices that are being, you know, thrown on women are of a certain age in Hollywood and hopefully mm. get increasingly better. But I think something interesting that you said, Steph, was about the age, and I think it's interesting to notice how it's shifted from you know, the age of whatever happened to Baby Jane when, you know, Betty and Joan were only in, in their sort of early 50s when they started the film and they were already considered, as you said, old ladies, whereas now we would never call someone like Sandra Bullock or Julianne Moore. We think of them as sort of, well, quite young still. I mean, middle-aged at most. So it's very different, I think. I mean, both Jessica and Susan Sarandon, Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon, who starred in Feud are, well, 70, and they're playing 50-year-old characters. So I think that's really different, that we can accept someone who's 70 playing a 50-year-old quite easily these days. Whereas in the old days, you know, if you're in your 40s, you were already considered old. It's really crazy. I mean, even well, in your late 30s... Well, that dynamic plays out in Feud, too. Yeah. But even your late 30s, when, you know, like Vivian Lee in Streetcar Named Desire, she was, what, 36 or something? And she, well, she's playing an older, played-out character, and it's just crazy. The funny thing about that, though, is Blanche is, like, 25 years old. (laughs) That's how old the character is supposed to be. And she's, like, this washed-up, like, oh, I'm an old maid widow. Not widow, but, like, old maid washed-up school teacher spinster yeah and it's like oh dear <laughs> i'm 34 so. <laughs> <laughs> so let's but um should we well, talk a little bit about feud and, and its performances because i think you know the cast is incredible yes. obviously headed by the incredible jessica lang who i have a very personal you know love for but susan saran is also incredible and also the supporting cast is great do you guys want to say what your favorite performances were and the highlights um, well, for, well, I can definitely talk about one of my favorite scenes in Feud, um, which comes in, I think it's episode three, it's in the episode called Mommy Dearest, mm-hmm. um, and it comes in at a point when uh, Joan and Betty are sitting together, and they kind of open up to each other, which is a rarity um, thus far in the series because um, we've just sort of seen them at each other's throats and sort of being uh, very snippy with each other. But they sit down over a drink um, and they open up to each other about their backgrounds and about their childhoods and reveal some very personal things about one another. And it's the first time that we kind of see them almost having a bit of a, a truce with one another and being almost not, well, I wouldn't say exactly friendly, but being much more accepting of one another, which I just, I love that scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. And everything from the lighting to the way it's 
uh, framed on their faces. Um, it's just a gorgeous scene, and it it it's a moment that just shows if it weren't for sort of the men in Hollywood who were pitting <laughs> these two women against each other, that actually maybe they could have been friends and they could have had um, quite a nice relationship together, quite possibly. Um, but I just think that it's it's gorgeous. But the lighting in that scene is fantastic, as is the lighting throughout the whole series um, and the way it's framed um, and filmed. I think it's I think it's very it's gorgeous. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if I really had a favorite scene per se because I. So I, I started watching this show when it came out, and I watched about three episodes and couldn't really get into it. Like it wasn't catching my attention in the way I hoped it would, and so I rewatched the entire thing just specifically for this podcast. And I think I really got into it more in the later episodes, like episode seven. I think it's eight episodes altogether. So yeah. like episode seven and episode eight. Uh, when there was a bit of high drama. And I really um, was touched by Jessica's portrayal of Joan because Joan Crawford, to me, um, just as an old Hollywood fan, was always someone who I was kind of like, oh, you know, like everyone talks about her, but I don't really understand her appeal because, first of all, her eyebrows kind of scared me (laughs) in general. I was like, oh, geez, what's happening here? Um, (laughs) uh, And I just didn't really give her much of a chance. and so it's only been quite recently that I've gone back and watched some of her earlier films and, and tried to learn a bit more about her. So I guess I'm kind of like a Joan newbie fan. Um, I definitely knew more about Betty Davis than I did Joan going into this. So I was really touched by Jessica's portrayal of her in a really sympathetic kind of sad light. Um, I mean, I think she came off as very vulnerable and that's just not, it's, it was so counterintuitive to the image that I had of Joan. Uh, being a classic film fan over the years that was kind of jarring for me and I think I really appreciated that. It was a bit different than what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't really have a specific scene that I I would call a favorite, but I just think Jessica's performance in particular was quite moving. I think it's great that you're saying that because I think it was kind of intentional. They really wanted to not alter the image, but to present a different facet of the image that Joan has in the popular imagination, because obviously um, everyone knows the Mommy Dearest caricature. Yes. Oh, yeah, of course. I love, I mean, I love Mommy Dearest. I think it's a crazy, like, on drugs acid trip film. (laughs) It's a great sort of cult classic, but I mean, arguably, it doesn't have that much to do with the real Joan Crawford. I mean, we don't really know exactly right. what happened. So, you know, it's it's a difficult topic to talk about the whole, you know, abuse it allegations. Was, it was definitely, and, yeah, de- definitely nice that she was portrayed in a more, like, humanistic light. Because watching Mommy Dearest in some of her, like, mid-1940s and later films, um, she just comes off as kind of like this stone-cold bitch a lot, you know? And it's it's really nice to see this... I don't know. I I actually love Joan's later films. I love the films. The Joan that we know. I love the films like post um, uh, Mildred Pierce. I think she's great. I think they're some of my favorite films. But I think the thing is, people don't really. I mean, how many people really go back and watch someone's full filmography and really, you know, give it all their attention? I mean, mostly people just know certain images. And I think with Joan, it's not even her own image, it's someone else's image, you know, the fate, the fate mm. Dunaway image. So it's, it is really damaging, not, you know, just forget Joan the person, but also Joan the star and her legacy. So I think it's very unfair. And I, I really like that, well, that they got Jessica to do it because she definitely has the, the acting chops to, to, to do it. And she did a great job of putting a, a, a very different face on Joan Crawford. And I think it was interesting at the time reading sort of fans you know, comments on social media and on, on the internet being like, oh, I never knew that Joan was like this, or I, I love Joan. And there were like hashtags like Team Joan. So it was like, it was really <laughs> nice because you, you know, going into it, you wouldn't, you, you know, at the beginning people were like, oh, I hate Joan. A lot of people like were giving her a lot of hate. And then after, as the episodes went on, there was a lot of sympathy for her. So that's, I guess, credit to Jessica's acting and to the writing as well. But when it comes to favorite scenes, and I, Steph and I, by the way, we were like big fans of the show from the very beginning. And like, we watched it like religiously. <laughs> and then we would like meet at work on Saturdays because we only worked together on Saturdays. And we were like 
talk about the show and reenact scenes and you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and have the best time <laughs> we Amazing. did i mean we still do we have like quotes that are like timeless <laughs> regular ones that pop up here and there <laughs> so <laughs> what did you guys think about betty or um susan sarandon as betty davis I thought she was amazing. I I think that she did an absolutely incredible job um, portraying Betty. Um, then again, I was reading some articles about Feud, and I thought it was interesting that people seem to uh, definitely kind of think that Susan Sarandon portrayed Betty Davis more accurately than Jessica Lange portrayed um, Joan Crawford. Um, but I think that a lot of that might have to do with the fact that Betty Davis as a person was so, she was larger than life and she had all of these kind of mannerisms and she was, I think as a person, she is much easier to sort of almost mimic in a way. Um, and yeah. Susan Sarandon does it to a T. Um, obviously, Jessica Lange does an incredible job doing Joan Crawford. However, I do feel that there are certain subtleties to Joan Crawford's persona. And obviously Joan had such a, um, she had a softness with her fans. She had a softness with the way that she sort of greeted people on set and was so smiley and very sort of proper and put together and very subdued. And then obviously on screen, she plays, you know, all sorts of different um, characters. But I think it's, it, well, I personally think it was probably a lot harder to pin down the exact ways that Joan moved and Joan um, spoke and thing. So Susan Sarandon absolutely, you know, she nailed it. But I think quite possibly she had a bit of an easier job with Betty for that. I think too, because Susan Sarandon looks quite a lot like Betty yeah. Davis, just naturally yeah. she has the same type of eyes and face shape and everything. So I think that might've been another reason why she was more able to- Possibly, yeah directly mimic whereas Jessica Lang, I think it took quite a lot of makeup and everything to make her look like Joan. I, I still don't think that she completely looked like Joan in the way that Susan looked like well, Betty, but yeah. <laughs> they got the eyebrows right anyway. <laughs> Those eyebrows. <laughs> Those eyebrows. I think with Susan like the main actually probably the main challenge was to avoid like Steph said like the impersonating because they would have been really easy because she is so so like flamboyant. And she does all the hand movements with the cigarette and the, the voice and you know so it's easy to get into that sort of female impersonator territory and i think susan did really well not doing that she still is very human and very natural but there are those very pronounced sort of tones that are very betty but she doesn't mm -hmm. overdo it which i think is great yeah Definitely. But I think the supporting um, cast is also worth mentioning because there are some really brilliant supporting actors playing mm, some key definitely. roles. For me, um, Judy Davis was just absolutely amazing as, as Hedda Hopper. She's fabulous. Yeah, she was amazing. And I really have a bone to pick with Hedda Hopper because I don't think she was a very nice person. <clears throat> oh, no. <laughs> um, I mean, I've gone through her papers at the Academy Library in LA and she was just like, I don't know, she was, she's like the 1940s and 50s version of like, I don't know, not Ann Coulter, but just like someone from Fox News, you know, just like really kind of like in your face and like, I have these really strong conservative opinions and let's trash all of these people. And I was just like, oh, you're, ugh, you know, but you know, she, she had some good copy in her LA Times. I think Judy, articles. I think Judy Davis does a great job. Um, of portraying the sort of two-sided Hedda Hopper because you do sort of loathe her on a certain level because, you know, she is bashing these actresses and she is criticizing them and, you know, writing slanderous gossip. But at the same time, I think Judy Davis portrays her in a very, again, a very human way. And it's a way that we kind of understand her and I think there are tidbits of her her background that come out in the series sort of like she was a failed actress um, yeah. and so she had a yeah. and she had a bone to pick with you know these grand you know stars so you can kind of I think the way that they you know they weaved some of these details into the backstory of Hedda Hopper within the series you do get a better sense of maybe why she was this way um, but I think Judy Davis absolutely did a brilliant job playing her um, and we definitely get a multifaceted head of hopper, which was a, a nice thing to see. 
Yeah. I thought Stanley Tucci was really good as Jack Warner as well. And uh, I think he's such a great actor anyway, but I thought he really kind of embodied like the whole look of Jack Warner with a little, <laughs> you know, pencil mustache and, and just, I think kind of embodied all these stories that you hear about these movie moguls and the casting couch and, and these people being just kind of gross and, and, you know, like slimy and, the only thing about Stanley yeah. Tucci, he's just he's just too cute to be like really gross and slimy. I was just like, oh, I but don't know. He's there was this one. <laughs> there was this one bit where I can't remember exactly what the scene was about, but Joan came into his office and he's like, oh, you better get on your hands and knees and start sucking some cock. And I was like, I bet that happened all the time yeah. in old Hollywood. I bet it still happens today. And these like lecherous kind of men that were just you know expecting people to give them favors for getting whatever they wanted and it was uh, it's kind of depressing <laughs> to think well, about it yeah i mean but i thought he did good very timely <laughs> there, yeah exactly there's so many t- issues in feud that are still timely which is depressing in itself because it's a period piece but yet it's still relevant today yeah Aww. especially like the whole me too thing and harvey weinstein and yeah it's just depressingly relevant depressing yeah to think about it do you guys want to talk a little bit about Olivia and the whole Catherine Zeta-Jones playing Olivia de Havilland and the whole court case that came out of this that's a bit of a sticky issue because it's still ongoing but what are your opinions or maybe we should give a bit of background for those of our listeners who are not aware of it yeah, so Olivia de Havilland is still alive. She's living in Paris. She is a hundred and is she hundred and one or a hundred and two? Hundred one. One one still oh. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and so after the show came out, um and I have a feeling she probably didn't actually watch it because she's a hundred and one years old, but uh she basically well her legal team and she decided to sue um fx and ryan murphy for the portrayal that Catherine zeta jones did of her in this series so basically she claimed that she was portrayed as like this you know gossip and vengeful person who called her sister joan fontaine a bitch which i think we can probably all agree that she probably did call her sister Joan Fontaine a bitch because they also had a legendary feud uh, that, you know, lasted until Joan died a few years ago. Um, But anyway, it it went to court in California and was basically shot down in court as um, that the whole thing about it is that it's right of publicity, wherein Olivia says, you know, as a living actress, she wasn't asked whether uh, she was going to be portrayed in this series. Um, I don't think they sent her the script or anything like that. So uh, it's basically like she she's contending that she has the right to control her own image and the fact that she wasn't asked about this show at all and she didn't have any part in it and she didn't sanction it, um, that it goes against her right of publicity and her ability to make money off of her image and that it also tarnished her image, which is of this, you know, this nice... Uh, goody two-shoes kind of lady. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it was shot down in court, but apparently now she and her legal team are taking it to the Supreme Court in California. So we'll see what happens. She's not giving Um, up, which, I mean, I think it's quite admirable in itself because she's, you know, you you have to think, you know, she's 101 and she's still feisty and fighting. So that's quite admirable. But whether I agree with what she's fighting for, I'm not sure. I mean, it's a fictionalized version of real life events and basically if she wins i mean a lot of people have argued that that will sort of endanger creativity and endanger sort of all kinds of you know like free speech exactly and writing for television and for movies and books as well so because Mm -hmm. there is such a thing as creative license and you know obviously no one was there no one knows exactly what happened so you can never portray it exactly how it was but I mean, a, yeah, I mean, for me watching this, I think uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones portrayed Olivia as like the stoic, quite nice woman. I don't think she was, you know, I don't think her image was trashed at all. 
in this show. And um, I just, I, I think if anything, it sort of made people sit up and notice like, oh, Olivia de Havilland, she's still around. Let's learn more about her, you know, where she, I mean, she hasn't been in the spotlight other than the fact that she turned 101 and she's still alive, but she hasn't been like working or doing films for quite a long time. And so I, I think by her fighting it, it's really kind of tarnishing her image in a way. And I know a lot of people disagree with this, but Anthony and Steph, um, I don't know if you've dealt with this, but Anthony and I dealt with a sort of similar thing when we were doing our Ava Gardner book, wherein Ava Gardner's estate tried to control everything about our book, about our project, um, you know, basically saying that they want Ava to be portrayed in a certain way and they tried to stop us from doing it. And, you know, lawyers got involved and everything. It was just a complete nightmare. But when you're a public figure, like Olivia de Havilland is, or Ava Gardner was, um, your your life and your image is kind of public domain. So anyone can write a book about you, anyone can do a film about you. But the argument here is that because Olivia is still alive, then she should have final say in controlling her image. But I just disagree with mm. that because I think, it, uh, the, the reason why though, I just wanted to say is that the things that she's contending in this this case is that you know it, it's so like minuscule to me it just seems like she's making a mountain out of a molehill and it just seems to me like a ploy by her legal team to get money for her that's honestly how i feel about it well i agree i think the whole thing is preposterous because as you mentioned kendra i think if anything olivia should be happy that her name is being brought up in conversation again because there will be plenty of you know younger people who may not have that big of an interest in film who have started watching feud who will hear the name olivia de Havilland and maybe associate oh i like Catherine zeta jones she's playing olivia de Havilland. let me look into this person so i think mm -hmm. if anything you know it's bringing her good publicity it's it's bringing back to life her name that's sort of been dormant for however many years and to be honest the way Catherine zeta jones like you said you know portrayed olivia de Havilland, it wasn't in a negative light at all and no. i think you know i think in the reading the news about the case, one of the major issues that they had, well, that Olivia de Havilland had was that Catherine Zeta-Jones used the word bitch. And <laughs> Olivia de Havilland was like, I've never said that word, you know, it's... Oh, well, you know, what I have to say is that is bitch, please. Well, we exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then, and then sort of in court, they were bringing up um, evidence that Olivia de Havilland had used other, you know, terms like son of a bitch or goddamn this. Dragon cetera, lady. Exact dragon lady. <laughs> and you just have to sort of be like, really, Olivia? Really? You're really going to be yeah. this petty over the word bitch? So I mean, I think, well, you have to think that that her legal team is spending a ton of money, or she's spending a ton of money via her legal team to fight this case, which which I think, you know, if her image actually was being trashed, or if they were portraying her in a completely fabricated way, then that's that would be a different story. Yeah, but exactly. But it just seems, it seems so silly to me, and I worry as a writer that if she wins this case in the Supreme Court, that that's going to have such repercussions for people who write biographies, mm. who write, you know, um, docudramas, who, who can't then take artistic license with things. Um, you know, a lot of people are arguing like, well, you have to stick with the facts. And it's like, yeah, you have to stick with the facts. But, you know, Olivia is a very private person. She doesn't do a lot of interviews. There aren't very many books about her. She says she's doing her own autobiography again, which should be out sometime before she kicks the bucket, which hopefully won't be for a long time. But, you know, it's like all of these things are guarded. So we don't know exactly what happened mm. in a lot of these instances. And in that case, when you're when you write a biography and you write nonfiction, you kind of have to piece together those gaps in the puzzle with your own sort of like artistic license. And so if she wins and that sort of thing is taken away, I think that would have major repercussions for biography. I don't think she will. I mean, I don't see it happening because it's just I mean, she doesn't really have an argument that would help her win it, but I just don't think so. Well, fingers crossed that she doesn't, But uh, I think. Anyway, I also, I, I was just surprised because she is in no way sort of the lead focus of the series. She's a very secondary character. She only appears a few yeah, times exactly. throughout the series, so it's not, it's not about you, Olivia, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
but maybe she wishes it was. Well, anyway, let's I, move and I'm on. Not saying anything <laughs> ba- well, I'm not saying anything bad about Olivia because I like Olivia de Havilland and oh, I yeah, love absolutely. a lot of her films, but I just think this is, this is. is silliness. It's just a sort of a misguided, I don't know, I feel like, like you said, I think she was sort of advised illy, if that's a word, illy advised. Yeah, <laughs> yeah ill advised. I think um, so too. Yeah, but anyway, we wanted to also talk very quickly because I realize we're running out of time, but we also want to talk about Betty and Joan as gay icons because I think that's a very interesting topic and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are seen as sort of one of the first real LGBT icons um, as early as 1950s they were already considered gay icons before it was even you know a thing so along with some what, of the- what does it mean to be a gay icon and how does someone become one well I think originally it was you know obviously in the 50s you know there were no such thing as gay rights I mean gay people in many countries you know it was illegal to 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 be gay or you know to practice it um, so gay people went through hell really and they had they had to hide who they were and you know the the whole culture was very um very hidden sort of very underground culture and they they had so the original gay icons were sort of people like judy garland and bessie and joan marilyn monroe as well so the just those very sort of larger than life characters who struggled a lot in their personal life but also you know, played those big characters, and um, I don't know. And I, I think there's a certain, a certain um, quality of campness and sort of being easy to imitate as well, because that ties in with this whole sort of female impersonator aspect of it. And Betty and Joan are both favorites when it comes to that, and especially actually whatever happened to Baby Jane. I mean, it's a it's a staple on sort of drag scenes everywhere. So. But very- well, as we know from Drag Race All Star Season Two, when they did, <laughs> when they did, what happened to Baby JJ, starring yeah. Alaska and Alyssa Edwards, and it was amazing, and it made my life. So, so it's yeah, but I mean, what is it about these specific women? I mean, you wouldn't call like all the old actresses gay icons, would you? No, no, I think certainly Betty and Joan are well recognized as gay icons and I think they even addressed it at the time during their lifetime which was very unusual because you didn't really talk about that but you know in the 60s as early as the 1960s sort of interviewers would ask them you know why do you have such a big they wouldn't say gay then they would say like you know why are homosexuals coming to see your pictures (laughs) (laughs) and they would just become really uncomfortable because it wasn't something that you could embrace at the time and you know you can't fault them for that because you know they couldn't be like yes i love my gay fans like they couldn't say that obviously well i mean they probably married a couple during their lifetimes to be fair (laughs) well judy certainly did judy garland (laughs) did but um Betty actually was very, very fierce, and that's shown in Feud. There's a scene which I think is fictionalized, but, you know, it sort of highlights the fact that she was one of the first ones to really embrace their her gay following, and, you know, she said that I only knew I made it once they started making, like, impressions of me. So, like, she was actually... She embraced it, and it was a big deal back then. You could, like, to say in any way to suggest that you were supportive of gay people was very very brave so I think you know hats off to Betty because she was I think Joan was a lot more uncomfortable you know when they asked her she would say something like oh I don't know I think you know I appeal to all sorts of people I don't know if homosexuals are you know so and the same with Judy Garland like she they would be very uncomfortable addressing that they sort of didn't know what to say really Um, so Betty was one of the first ones to be like yeah this is happening and I own it and, I, and I'm grateful for it. But now, obviously, you have people like Madonna and Sharon, like, it's a big deal. They they realize it and they embrace it and they know it's part of their appeal. But the early gay icons, it was, you know, it was different. But I know because, you know, I grew up, my you know, my early childhood, I spent not really being aware of what a gay icon was. I mean, I grew up in Poland and, you know, in a quite a conservative environment and I had no yeah. no idea what what you know the whole gay culture I was completely unaware of it but I was sort of naturally drawn to people like that like I loved Betty Davis I loved John Crawford and 
um, Marilyn and Madonna and Cher. I love those people without knowing that they were gay icons. So obviously it's, I don't know, I wasn't told you have to like them, <laughs> you know? But what was it about those people that you kind of were drawn to? I honestly don't know. I think it is the performance, the, the personality, the sort of the very strong presence i guess you know it gives you mm-hmm. s- so when you watch a betty davis film or a john crawford film you really you feel empowered somehow their strength somehow sort of seeps its way through the screen into you you feel like yeah if they can do it i can do it and they go through a lot of you know a lot of hard times on screen and they can they can deal with it and they have like clever lines and they deliver them in a very flamboyant way and you feel you know they can do it i can do it and you sort of go out there and and you are betty davis for a day it's great you know <laughs> oh i want to be betty davis for a day oh you can be anyone can be <laughs> i can be that's the oh, whole yeah. point i yeah. do think it's interesting though looking at some of these gay icons especially betty davis and joan crawford but also judy garland that kind of you know what anthony was saying a lot of these women had a certain vulnerability to them and they also in their personal lives faced a lot of adversity which i think perhaps it's these sort of i don't know almost fractured souls and these sort of you know these women who are facing who themselves were you know women as a kind of minority and having to face all these challenges and you know constantly being put down um when they were trying to you know make their way Mm -hmm. in the world i think that probably had something to do with their appeal as well um just sort of an identification in the fact that you know you have all this turbulence going on and yet you're rising above it all and i'm sure that that was you know i mean it's inspiring for everyone like a exactly like a phoenix from the ashes Um, there's a really good documentary. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen I it called seen The Celluloid it. Closet. No. Yes. Have you guys watched that? Yeah. Um, you might know staff Richard Dyer, who used to teach at King's. Yeah, he is one of the... Go, Richard. Um, he's one of the uh, talking heads on the documentary. But it's really good because it's it basically uh, talks about the history of representations of LGBT, pe- LGBT people in cinema and how... Um, a lot of gay people, bisexual people would watch these earlier films and and kind of look for certain signs that they could connect to (laughs) with people. And um, it's just really interesting. So yeah, I guess it might be kind of the same. I mean, Johnny Guitar with Joan Crawford is one of the classic examples of, you know, she, everyone says, you know, she played a lesbian. It's so obvious. And, you know, <laughs> but, or even... I think you can read so many films and like from like a queer standpoint. Yeah. Like I wrote a blog post once about Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca because hello, Mrs. Danvers is totally a lesbian. I don't know <laughs> if anyone is. And people like I wrote a blog post about it for like a queer blogathon. And I was like, yes, Mrs. Danvers, definitely. Because once seen, it cannot be unseen. I'm sorry. But um, a lot of people are coming on and being like, no what are you talking about no that's not no that's never what they thought and i was like guys come on but the funny thing is it's so subliminal because as a queer you know person you can watch it and not i don't think well i never did i wasn't like oh she's definitely a lesbian or he's gay it's Mm. it's more like it appeals to you because of the way it's written and because of the way they deliver their lines you kind of it speaks to you but i wasn't always i was never like oh i bet sort of a gay person wrote this or i bet this character is meant to yeah. be gay i think it's just the way i mean let's face it a lot of hollywood people writers were gay so a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the sort of the essence in those movies was somehow i don't know it's like i love tennessee williams again it's because Mm. his way of looking at the world in a way must must be must mirror my outlook in some way you know you, you know it's mm-hmm. not just like a heteronormative way of looking at the world but there is queerness to it i mean that's where the word queer comes from isn't it it's, it's the different the different different yeah different outlook different point of view so i think that's really what attracts attracted people to to them Mm-hmm. So if you guys could recommend one Betty and one Joan film to our listeners, which ones would you recommend? Um, you for first. Betty, <laughs> I would recommend Now Voyager, um, as that's one of my favorites. Mm. Um, and then for Joan, I would probably say Sudden Fear as my, as my 
Oh, it's fantastic. You really didn't need to see that one. Thank you. It's really good. Okay. Wow. Uh, When is that one made? It was 1952. I want to say 1952. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is, and it, she was Indeed. nominated for an Oscar, actually. Oh, it's, so it's yeah, beautiful. It's Not only is her performance yeah. absolutely stunning, but the cinematography—it's—it's it's a noir drama, and the cinematography is just amazing. The way that they play with, well, with Joan's face and light and shadow—it's yeah, it's brilliant, and everyone should watch it. I'm gonna write that one. I'm gonna write that one down. I'm writing it down right now. I love that stuff, like <laughs> light and shadow on Joan's face. I mean, that I'm in Queen oh, Heaven good. right now. <laughs> <laughs> what do you love about Now Voyager? What's, I why is that your favorite? I love Now Voyager because it is, it's a transformation story. Um, it, well, I don't know if you want a plot summary or not for listeners, um, but it's, it's a transformation story basically at the start of the film. Um, Betty starts off um, as kind of a, basically a spinster aunt, and um, she's, yeah, and she's, she's basically <laughs> having a nervous breakdown because she lives with her overbearing, domineering mother, and her, you know, her mom, overprotective, but also kind of wants to keep uh, Betty Davis's character, Charlotte, as the spinster who just looks after her. But uh, Betty basically has a nervous <laughs> breakdown and is sent to a sanatorium to basically get her wits back. Um, and you wonder why. <laughs> and you wonder why gays loved her. I mean, indeed. <laughs> um, so she gets sent to the sanatorium and she has some time to rest and get better. And then her doctor basically um, suggests that she goes on essentially a, like a pleasure cruise to Rio. And um, a pleasure, indeed. A pleasure cruise to Rio. You having a nervous Amazing. Um, so she goes on this pleasure <laughs> cruise and she meets a man. Um, but it turns out, shock horror, that the man is married. Um, and so the film kind of deals with that. But the whole, the whole film is not only a story of transformation, which I love, but it also deals with mental health in a really insightful way um, that I think is very much before its time. Because uh, the film was from 1942, but the way that they portray mental health and especially sort of mental health in women um, is is really fantastic and quite revolutionary. Because I think in so many films you see women who um, you know, who are having mental health issues, they're portrayed as sort of these crazy or violent uh, women who are you know, terrorizing people or who are just sort of going absolutely off the deep end. Um, But this deals with mental health in a really gentle way and kind of shows how through psychiatry and through um, the right kind of help, how you can really sort of regain your self-esteem and how just believing in yourself and accepting yourself for who you are can really transform you. Um, So the whole film, the film is just fantastic. Betty's amazing in it. She goes from, you know, being the sort of dowdy spinster girl to being this amazingly kind of glamorous um, woman with, she just does the transformation so well. And she did. She it did is an amazing the glow, glow up. up yeah. The glow up of all <laughs> glow ups. For Reed, I love that oh. scene where the camera sort of like sleeks oh my up, like from her feet up with to the her hat, face. And you like, see she's half wearing of her that face, hat. but she's oh just oh, it's amazing. But I think it's just yeah, it's a wonderful story of uh, believing in yourself and kind of learning to accept yourself. And it also is great because it teaches you that you don't need a man to be happy. I also think is a great message <laughs> for a movie. Fair so enough. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, mm. that's yeah, a great recommendation. Okay. Thanks, Steph. <laughs> that is very good. So for my favorite, my favorite <laughs> Betty, I think, I mean, I know it's probably a cliche, but All About Eve, I absolutely love. I think every single line in that screenplay is fantastic and flawless. And Betty's performance is this kind of very actressy, very over-the-top actress, apparently sort of modeled on Tilda Bankhead. But I mean, she is. I can see that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's just. Oh, I just love Margot Channing. I mean, 
when I was younger, I wanted to be Margot. <laughs> I mean, I still kind of want to be Margot Channing, to be honest. But no, I do love All About Eve. But actually, a bit lesser known film that Betty was in is called The Star. And she made it a few years after All About Eve. And it's, again, she plays this sort of actress who kind of goes off the rails a little bit and, and is rejected by the industry and has to really fight her way up. And I think she's really, really good in that film. And it's, yeah, it's not talked about very often. It also features a young Natalie Wood as her as her daughter. It's a very good film. The star for Joan. Oh, it's really hard because she, as I said before, had so many different periods in her career, where, which are so so dramatically different from one another. So I love Grand Hotel from her early period, which is really good. Mm. It's got Garbo and John Barrymore, and, and I think she really sort of. You know, she's not upstaged by either one of them. She's really great in that. But later, I think mm. I love Possessed, which is, again, a, yes. a great film about mental illness and obsession. And, and her her performance is just so detailed and so brilliantly sort of complex. I think she's really good. I mean, if anyone ever doubts her talent, they should definitely watch Possessed. I think it's, it's a great film. And I agree. Finally, Kendra, do you have your favorites? Well, my favorite Betty film is also all about Eve, which I mentioned earlier. So I'll just talk about my favorite Joan film, which is actually Dancing Lady with Clark Gable. Mm. Um, Last year, during the summer, I just basically sat down with TCM and watched all of the films she did with Clark Gable in the early 1930s. And Dancing Lady is by far my favorite because it's so funny and just fun and upbeat. And she plays like this. She plays a chorus girl and Clark Gable is like the, I don't know what you would call him, chorus like empresario person yeah Yeah, and uh he just like their banter back and forth i feel like clark gable has the same sort of like snappy banter with gene harlow yeah in his films with her um but with joan it's quite the same and she just you know she completely falls head over heels with this like kind of asshole-ish guy but it's like typical clark 1930s and just the dancing and it's the source of one of my favorite gifts of all time which is where they're like working out in the gym like furiously like doing these exercises <laughs> in the gym together like arguing with one another and just giving them giving each other these like kind of angry looks and everything it's it's a great film it's not like a brilliant film by any means but it's very fun isn't it the film where like I would completely... isn't it the film where he slaps her in the bum and she says thank- yes oh, and thank she's like, you thank you yeah it's very well it's pre-code isn't it so it's very kind and of it's also john pre-eyebrows pre- so that's probably why you like yes it. She, uh, yes, that's probably very true. It is Joan pre-Caterpillar eyebrows, so she looks very pretty in it. Um, she's very sassy. They have a really good rapport on screen. And also, I think Fred Astaire is in it as well. I think that was his oh, fi- wow. his first film. Um, so it's just really good. It's like part musical, part dance-off, part... <laughs> bum slapping. Bum, bum slapping, part like sassy banter watch Amazing. it really good. <laughs> yes <laughs> okay so, so i think we've covered a lot of ground i think so too <laughs> the point is I, the point is go watch feud and then watch all the betty films and all of the joan films and then <laughs> yeah go talk about them with your friends yeah definitely pass along the message <laughs> totally yeah Uh, So I think we're going to wrap it up here, but next time we're going to be talking to the author Michelle Morgan about her new book, The Girl, about Marilyn Monroe. So that's going to be really fun. Yes. So stay tuned for that. And uh, we just wanted to say thanks so much, Steph, for coming on the show. Thank you. I had such a great time. It was really fun talking to you. Oh, thanks, Uh, Steph. Stop it. Sorry, you guys. You're the best. (laughs) Stop it. Okay, thanks guys. See you next time. All right, thanks guys. Yeah, bye. Bye.